Good morning. Uh, this morning's passage is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Jesus Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, do, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Okay, what letter comes next? Oh, I better make sure this is on. I did this once before and left it off the whole time. Oh, this clip drives me crazy. <laughs> it's stuck. I can't get it off my belt. <laughs> well, you know, oh, there we go. All right. I think we're live. There we are. Okay. What letter comes next? T-G-I-F. T-G-I-F. Why doesn't anyone ever say T-G-I-M? Thank goodness it's Friday. We never say thank goodness it's Monday. Why don't we say thank goodness it's Monday? Weekends are a drag. <laughs> Can hardly wait to get back to my cubicle. No, it's TGIF. We always say, thank goodness it's Friday. My kids have been enjoying Garfield lately. And uh, if you know Garfield, you know that he hates, he hates Mondays. Now, I'm not sure Monday hits us all that hard. But most people do prefer Fridays to Monday. We prefer being done for the week rather than starting for the week. Um, our culture has trained us to think that work is a necessary evil. That work is something to be endured and to be escaped from as soon as possible and as often as possible. In fact, even on this Labor Day weekend, which is a weekend set aside to honor the dignity and the value of work, how do we celebrate it? By taking a day off work. It's Labor Day. I don't have to go to work. That's like saying, it's Canada Day. I'm going to leave the country. Sorry, I'm just going to turn that off. Doesn't that seem a little backwards to celebrate Labor Day by not going to work? But that's what we do. Um, is that what you think about work? I love the weekend. I love being done work. Now, what if it was different than that? What if work was instead a vehicle for worship and an arena in which to experience joy and fullness and even, even love? Is it possible to say TGIM? with as much enthusiasm as we say TGIF. Now, here's what I'm not trying to do. Uh, I'm not trying to be the parent who says to their kid at dinner time, see, daddy loves liver too. This is not some pep talk. Come on, everybody, work is fun. That's not what I'm trying to do this morning. But what if, what if the book of Ephesians is right in saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ has such a transformational effect on us and on our relationships that even relationships between workers and bosses can be rich 
and fulfilling. Because that, I think, is what God is claiming here. And if he's right, then thank goodness it's Monday makes just as much sense as thank goodness it's Friday. Think that's asking too much? Well, I challenge us to consider this text and order our life under it this week and see. Um, let me say at the outset that I'm going to broaden the application of this text this morning. And by that, I mean this. Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, was written specifically to Christian slaves and Christian masters or slave owners. And that would have been a household context, not a workplace context. Okay, this is now the third consecutive section in Ephesians where Paul addresses how the relationships in the household are transformed by the grace of God. First he talks about husbands and wives, and then parents and children, and now masters and slaves. While we are not slaves, no matter what you feel like at work, and nor do we own anybody, and nor for most of us is our workplace a necessarily Christian context. It's not necessarily Christian bosses and Christian workers. So our context is just different than that to which Paul was writing. But nevertheless, what, what Paul is saying here, what he is urging them toward, is directly applicable to our context, to us in our work. And I'm going to broaden it still further than that, though, and think less in terms of employment or work and more in terms of occupation. And by occupation, I mean that which occupies us for the bulk of our working day. And for the... Many of us, that is, in fact, our jobs. But others of you are students. School started this week for most of you in grade school or high school. If you're in college or university, your school year starts in this week to come. Now, if you're a student, that is your occupation right now. And God can say some things to you about how your being his child plays out in your life as a student. Some of you are stay-at-home parents. That is your occupation. And when parenting is done right, you probably see yourself both as master and slave at the same time. And this text can speak to you as well. Uh, many of you are retired, and your occupation may be as a volunteer or as a spouse or a homemaker or a grandparent. And whatever occupies your time and has you in relationship with people this text in Ephesians 6 can be God's word to you today, if you will open yourself up to it. So whatever your occupation, worker, employer, parent, student, retired, your occupation can be an avenue for worship, for mission, and for joy, and yes, even for love. Let's step back and see this text against its background in Ephesians. Uh, you remember what we have been saying that the whole book of Ephesians is about? That in Christ, God has reconciled us into new relationship with him and with each other. Okay, we were sinners alienated from God. And not only from God, but from everything to do with God. From alienated from his people, outside of his promises and his covenant. Alienated from his grace, his favor, his blessings. But even though we were alienated, God acted in kindness toward us and by the death of Jesus forgave us our sins, made us his children, and incorporated us into his people. Which means that we also are family members with each other. 
And there are practical implications for how life is to be lived in relationship with God and as a part of God's people. And every verse, every teaching, every instruction in the whole book of Ephesians has to do with this great reality, walking as children of God. I'm going to switch to this mic, if that's okay. I think mine is clunking around a little, Frank. That's all right. Thanks. Now, in this part of Ephesians, in chapter 6, there are some specific relationships that Paul is giving direct attention to. And as I said, they are, they are household relationships. Marriage, parenting, master-slave. Because if faith makes a difference in our lives, the first place that it will show up is at home. And the opposite is true. If our being children of God is not evidenced at home, then it's a sham. It's an act everywhere else. And in all three of these sections, marriage, parenting, and master-slave, God's word speaks to both sides of the relationships, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. And this itself, by the way, demonstrates the radically inclusive nature of the gospel. Now, this letter would have been read out loud in the context of public worship, in a worship service like we have. And here, Paul is is addressing women and children and slaves directly. Which means that in the context of public worship, he's addressing them, he's recognizing them as full participants in the church with not only the ability but also the responsibility to make choices about how they are to live. That is far more dignity and power than their culture would have granted to women and to children and to slaves. No slave or child would ever have any right of self-determination in the day in which this was written. God really does raise up the poor from the dust and lift the needy from the ash heap, making them to sit with princes and to inherit a seat of honor. The gospel is radically inclusive. And so God speaks not just to masters, but to slaves as well. And by the way, as well, God is not affirming slavery here. But what the Bible does is teach how to live Christianly in a non-Christian world. In a world where as many as half of the population of Roman cities would have been slaves, where slavery was considered normal by everybody, including the slaves, and where sudden widespread emancipation, emancipation or freedom would have meant economic collapse. The Bible doesn't, doesn't call for abolition. What it does call for is for Christ to be the central factor in the relationship between a master and a slave. The Bible says if you find yourself a slave, this is what it looks like to be a Christian slave. If you own a slave, this is what it looks like to treat them Christianly. And by addressing the heart and the transformation of relationships, the gospel already in the first century began to undermine the institution of slavery and, as one person has said, lit a fuse that eventually led to the explosion that destroyed it. And that, I think, is God's way. Don't legislate morality. Don't make it a political issue. But, church... Live in such a way as to influence your culture from the insides, not so that slavery becomes illegal, not so that, fill in the blank, becomes illegal, but so that it becomes unthinkable, whether it's legal or not. Now the text, 
First, God's word addresses the slave. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And here the slave is reminded not only what to do, but how, in what spirit, to do it, and why. What is the motivation? What is the slave told to do? To obey your earthly masters. The first obligation of a Christian slave and of a Christian employee and of a Christian student is just to do your job and do it well. No Christian should ever be known for being lazy or slack or for offering consistently a subpar performance. Like the woman I've heard of who eventually was let go from her job because she spent her day going from cubicle to cubicle and office to office sharing Christ with people instead of doing her job. She probably thought that she was serving the Lord, but in fact she was not because the Bible says, obey your master. If you're a Christian worker, do your job and try to do it well. But the Bible doesn't leave it at that either, and nor should it. Because obedience has an inner dimension, which makes sense biblically. For God is routinely concerned less with what we do and more with how we do it and why we do it. And so Paul goes on to say, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, Rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. In phrase after phrase, Paul piles up these phrases talking about heart, talking about attitude. And he did the very same thing when he talked to the children. Verse 1 and 2 of this chapter, you remember, obey your parents in the Lord. And don't just obey, which is about behavior, but honor your father and mother, which is about attitude and heart. So slaves, employees, students, moms, whatever your occupation is, how do you approach that occupation? Well, as if you were serving Christ. Uh, The book of Colossians, which is the companion book to this book of Ephesians, Paul writes this, a familiar verse, I think, but many of us maybe don't know that he's writing it to slaves. He says, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So we work well not just as if we are serving Christ, but we really are serving Christ. It is possible for a parent to prepare a meal as if Jesus himself were going to eat it. It is possible to clean your house as if Jesus himself were going to come and be a guest in your home. It is possible to teach in your classroom as if Jesus were one of your students. It is possible, student, to learn as if Jesus himself was your teacher or as if you were training for a career of service to Jesus. It is possible for mechanics to work as if they were working on Jesus' brakes and for medical professionals to treat patients as if they were treating Jesus. 
and so on. And in the church especially, to prepare a lesson, to practice music, to prepare a sermon, to clean a carpet, to track finances, to give leadership in service to Christ. Praise teams and choir. What if you chose and practiced music as if Jesus were in the pew on Sunday and you wanted either to honor him or to turn his thoughts toward his heavenly father? It is possible to act as if Jesus, you were Jesus' mom or dad or as if you were Jesus' husband or wife. It is possible, whatever your occupation, to do it in service to Christ. And that, I think, is what is meant by the phrase in fear and trembling. Not, not, in, not in a cringing humiliation before your master, but with the reverent acknowledgement that the authority under which we serve is ultimately the authority of Christ. But you say, yeah, but you don't know my boss. He's a petty man. He treats us like dirt. Shall I treat even him with honor and respect? You don't know my teacher. Well, 1 Peter 2 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. Is it not to be like Jesus, to love your enemies and to treat others better than they deserve? And yes, it is possible to choose to relate to them in a posture of respect and honor. Because it's not only them that you are serving, but it is Christ whom you are serving. And so then Paul also says, do it with goodwill, with sincerity of heart, and not just when they're watching you. Here comes the boss, look busy. But to do work with excellence and without complaining and with all your heart. Question, how might you feel about your occupation if you consistently said, you know what, I'm going to do this well today and without grudging it, I'm going to give Jesus a gift of a good day today. This does not mean that you go flat out and fall exhausted into bed every night as if giving our best effort means never letting up even for a moment. Not at all. In fact, God repeatedly calls his people to the practice of Sabbath and rest and refreshment. To balance in fact, I work better when I rest properly, too. But can you imagine Jesus saying to you, you know, I appreciate the fact that you try to be good at what you do, that you try to give your boss a good day, and that you do it with me in mind. I really like that. Thank you for that. So let's do a heart check. What is your heart and attitude when it comes to your occupation? Doesn't mean you have to like your job, either or like your school, or smile all day, every day. But it does mean to check a spirit of complaint at the door. Students, when you know school is coming, how do you think it feel? Workers, when you're going back to work tomorrow or Tuesday, what does your heart do when you think about that? Then Paul also here says why we are to be like this, what is to motivate us in this. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. It's interesting that God holds out the promise of reward from God as a motivator. We sometimes think that we should do what is right 
because it's right, and that doing what's right is its own reward. Well, we should do what's right just because it's right. But God also says there is a reward for those who do what is right. And I'm telling you this now so that it will help you do what is right. God, God says there is a reward for whatever, whoever does what is right. And God does this a lot in Scripture. I don't know if you notice this or not. If you bear up and remain faithful under hardship, there is a glory coming your way. If you live the life of faith, there is a crown of life waiting for you. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you may live long, and so on. And if you serve your masters well, working hard for them and for my sake, I will reward you for that. I see it, Jesus says. I keep track. See, masters have the power of life and death over their slaves, but slaves are not exhorted to work hard because of that, because there's somebody over them with power in their life, but because of Jesus and because of reward. You work for a paycheck. But you are not exhorted to work hard because their boss is paying you, but in service to Christ, and because Christ rewards faithful service no matter where it's rendered. How will Christ reward you? I don't know. I don't know. He may reward you with affirmation and favor at work, with a raise and a promotion, or a transfer to something better for you. He might reward you in, in a way that seems entirely unrelated to work, some blessing that your car should have broken down but didn't, or I don't know. Maybe your reward will not be until the other side and we're face to face with him. I don't know. But God tracks the good that we do. None of it escapes his notice. And every good thing, he says right here, will receive its reward. And we can be motivated by that. So in your next week at work, uh, in this season as a student, in your daily life as a parent or a spouse, can you choose to fulfill your occupation well with a good attitude in your heart and in your mind and with Christ in mind? As we do that, that becomes worship. And there's potential for joy. And we begin to express love. So, slaves... Workers, others. Then Paul addresses also the masters. And rather than just reiterate everything he's just said, he simply says, masters, do the same to them. Do the same? Obey? Well, no, but treat your slaves with the same attitude, with sincerity of heart and with goodwill as serving Jesus. See, again, a Roman master had absolute power and authority of life and death over his slaves. He could do anything he wanted with them for any reason or no reason. But when a master and a slave were both Christians, there was a new equality. And the master, and the slave was still a slave, but not only a slave, he was now a brother as well. And just as the husband was to love his wife and use his authority to serve her interests, and just as a parent was to love his children and not use his authority in an abuse of power, but to nurture and to care, so also a master who had absolute legal power of life and death over his slave was to care for his slave and not abuse this power either. And so stop your threatening, the text also says. 
See, in any Christian relationship where there is authority, marriage, parenting, work, leadership, church, it's never about power. It can never be about power. And if you find yourself in a position of authority, if you're a boss or employer or a teacher or a parent or a husband, do not threaten. And threaten here has to do with attitude. It is often appropriate to warn of consequences. But threatening is an abuse of power. It's manipulative. It's dark. And you notice that Paul said the same thing to fathers, calling not for the use of power, but for its restraint. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Masters, do not threaten. And what is the motivation here? Again, it's the future action of Christ. For the slave, it's the promise of reward. For Christ rewards all for their good, whether slave or free. For masters, it's an implied warning of retribution. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. For whether slave or free, no evil or unjust act goes unnoticed either. Again, the Roman culture offered masters complete freedom from consequences in their treatment of slaves. They could do anything they wanted and there would be no consequence. Paul reminds them, and God's word reminds us, that there are consequences. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, says the book of Hebrews. And so Paul reminds them that even though they are masters, they are themselves under authority and have a master. In fact, when slaves and masters are both in Christ, they are equally under the same master, who is Christ. So if you have someone under your authority, treat them Christianly. And this is just an application of the golden rule. Treat even your slaves as you would want to be treated by a master. It's, it's been said, and probably rightly so, that most labor relation issues arise out of a single sin, and that is greed. Employers and companies want more work and more time from their employees. Employees want more time off, higher pay, and greater benefits. And it can easily become all about me. What can I get? What am I entitled to? And Jesus says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Reverses the focus. It's not, it's not about me. It suddenly becomes about you. What's in your best interests? How can I serve you? How can I, how can I look out for what is good for you? And masters and slaves submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Bosses and workers, students and teachers. In your occupation, workers, submit to your employers out of reverence for Christ and with a Christ-word heart. Masters, submit to your employees out of reverence for Christ. Treat them with dignity and with respect and even with love. See, when Christ is Lord even of our occupation... We will give work our best effort, and we will give people our best treatment in any sphere, and certainly in our work. And the big idea here is quite simple. It's this. 
We worship Jesus in this context. We worship Jesus by working well and by loving well. In your classroom, in your workplace, in your home, in your marriage, in your occupation, we worship Jesus when we work well and when we love well. As we give our best at work and honor those around us, we are worshiping. And as we do this for the sake of Christ, what do you think happens? Work is transformed. There is a heightened satisfaction, even fullness, even joy. There is a greater awareness of Christ in your life in general because you've opened another facet of your life to him beyond just home and church and private spirituality. And so our life with Jesus becomes more complete yet. And again, in the context of Ephesians, we do this in the knowledge that God's power and love are present in us to enable this to happen. This is not just a command to work hard. It's a reminder that this too is an overflow of the expression of our being loved children of God. It is possible to go to work on Monday and from our hearts make our work an act of worship to Jesus and an expression of love to those in authority over us or to those under our authority. And this is why we can say with integrity, thank goodness it's Monday. Enjoy your weekends, rest, renew, have Sabbath. And on Mondays, let the fullness of God follow you to work or school. Allow yourself to worship by your work and to love as you have been loved. And thank God that it's Monday. Let's pray. Lord, we've talked about something just pretty practical today. All of us have an occupation of some kind. And I pray for your help in just understanding your scripture so that we can approach our occupation as you would have us approach it. Not just in the way of doing it right and behaving correctly, rolling up our sleeves and making sure that our eight and a half hour day is a good eight and a half hour day, but with goodwill and sincerity of heart out of reverence for Christ. If there be something about our character and the posture of our heart at work that is pleasing and good, that we wouldn't just do right, but that we would be right in your presence and out of that would do right. Pray for your help and blessing for each one of us in honoring you at work living Christianly at work and at school and at home. That there too, the reality of you in our lives would transform us and overflow and make an impact. And so we choose, even this morning, just to surrender this part of our life to you and ask you to help us bring more of it under your lordship. I pray that we would worship daily in the things that you give us to do. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior who redeems even work. Amen, amen.